I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. Welcome to a special edition of Unfinished Biz, aka Emergency Podcast, Robin. Yeah, this is a first. It is It is a first. You know, this is a departure from our normal format of a founder story, but we think this is a really important time where we can be supporting the broader ecosystem that we love regarding helping them navigate through this COVID-19 crisis. We've seen some interesting parallels from when VMG started, actually. You know, VMG started just before the 2008 financial crisis, where we spent most of the, the early years of VMG partnering with our founders on how to navigate through that particular challenging time period. So um, we thought it would be really helpful to the broader ecosystem for the GPs, the general partners of VMG to all hop on the the pod here. So in addition to to Robin and myself here, Wayne, you'll you'll get a chance here to meet our business partners, Kara Rell and Mike Mose. And I think you're going to hear us focus on three key items, right? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about team. We'll talk about supply chain. And I think probably the, the, the most important component and the one that you'll hear the most about is liquidity. But if I could sum it up in one thing, this really is a call to action. What you thought 2020 would be like when you were planning back in 2019, there's just no way that, that, that you would have been able to actually predict this. So if there's one thing that we could actually impart on, on you and your senior managers, it really is re- think 2020. Take the time to reflect. There are going to be brighter days ahead for those of you who are going to be able to navigate through these turbulent times. There's no doubt about that, but it is going to take a lot of foresight and planning. One other thing I wanted to mention is that this will be the first time that you're actually going to hear the voice of our producer, Sarah. Say hi, Sarah. Oh, hi, Sarah. <laughs> it turns out I've been working on Unfinished Biz behind the scenes the whole time. You just never knew I was here. Exactly. But I have been here the entire time. We're going to get kicked off the show. They're going to realize how much better Sarah is than, than the two of us. And so this might be our last episode as the host. And then Sarah's going to take this over. Exactly. Leave it to the professionals. I'm just here to keep you all in line. It's a, it's a big group we've got today, but I think a really important topic. And let's get right into it. All right, so we are here at the VMG offices in San Francisco. Rob and Wayne, we're all used to being together, but we've got two other of the VMG partners with us, Mike Mose. Hi, Mike. Hi. And joining us remotely, Kara Rell. Hi, Kara. Hello there. Now, even though we're in a very uncertain time right now, uh, a lot of us don't know what's going to happen in the next couple months at the best. Short term, very up in the air. However, there are some comparisons to be drawn by certain financial crises that have happened in the past. Mike, I know back in 2008, something that ended up affecting companies in a similar way, at least on the financial side. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. What was happening you know, we, at the time? we had just raised our first fund. 2008, we were in our first office on Francisco Street, the four of us kind of working together as the financial markets were really melting down. And we really wanted to come up with some proactive strategies to work with our entrepreneurs. We're dealing with similar problems today um, out there. We have a lot of uncertainty with what's happening in the financial markets, you know, out there. But I think what makes this more challenging uh, for us is that we're also dealing with the health of our family, of our team members here at VMG, as well as our portfolio companies. The financial aspect of it is it's interesting because 
yes, we know that this is a health pandemic. In fact, uh, on Wednesday, March 11th, the World Health Organization declared it a global pandemic. Big deal, health-wise. But so much of what has to happen in order to keep people safe will affect the bottom line for companies, especially smaller companies. We've always seen, you know, in the 2008 uh, crisis, a real slowdown in business. And we're going to have that this time. And how our companies react to that, I think, will be really critical to their long-term success. And also by different categories. You know, I think, you know, one of the things we saw was just in terms of just even price points or where the product is consumed or not consumable was a major impact on how businesses performed during that time period. And one of the things that's different on this one is, is you kind of think about where products are sold. I mean, I think back in the day, that really didn't have much of an impact. But because this is more of a health issue, you are starting to think that that may be a variable. Just to chime in there on that, I think in uncertain economic times like we have now and like we had then, there are opportunities as well as risks. And we saw our portfolio companies that were the most well-prepared to navigate the uncertainty were the ones that could win effectively in those hard times. So understanding whether or not their product uh, was a discretionary item or a staple, um, really starting to think through how they thought about their business model in uncertain times and economic difficulties uh, was really important. I think, unfortunately, it was just a dynamic where it ended up weeding out some companies and those that either were ill-prepared or just inherently didn't have a business model that was built in a sustainable way. It's unfortunate that that it was a game changer for them during this time period, and it very well may be this time as well. I think we're dealing with some new managers today that may not have been around a lot when that 2008 crisis yeah. uh, happened on it. I think the first thing that a manager really has to wrestle with is what their liquidity needs are and what that runway is of liquidity. I think over the past five years, entrepreneurs have felt that they've had a very long runway of liquidity opportunities, where they have the capital on their balance sheet or they're able to go out and raise additional capital. I think they thought that they had a lot of capital to be able to execute on their business um, business plans there. To me, one of the big things that's going to change over the coming months will be the lack of liquidity in the marketplace and some of the challenges that entrepreneurs are going to have to face because of that. I think the institutional memory of financial issues is very, very short. You know, Mike and I were working together at our former shop before we started BMG in the 2000-2001 period when the first internet bust happened. And there was a very quick constraint relative to liquidity, as Mike was saying. Lenders weren't lending, private equity funds and, and venture capitalists weren't funding. And uh, that was significant. And that moved very quickly uh, to a very different paradigm following the bust where there was available capital and we led to the larger bubble that we know to be the 2008-2009 crisis. Uh, so that institutional memory is very short. And I agree with Michael Hardly. We have a whole new uh, crew of managers uh, but we also have had a very long bull market uh, that is looking like it's getting ready to change into a, a very different uh, market. So I think that's uh, something that we are trying to get ahead of with all of our portfolio companies in particular. Well, Kara, speaking of managers, let's talk about the office in general. Not everybody works in one big office together, but that is often the case. And we are experiencing many companies, huge companies like Google saying no one in North America is going into the office until mid-April. And then smaller companies who might already be working remotely. So in general, what are best office practices depending on what the setup is? Yeah, it's a great question. And by necessity, I, we're all now in a position where we have to have great communication. But more importantly, we have the technology and the tools today to make that even more seamless. 
Uh, we have old-fashioned tools like email and telephone. We have all the new technology like Zoom, Slack, Mobilize, great tools that we can bring to bear. And I think being thoughtful around really the health and safety of our employees, the health and safety of our ecosystem, and just continuing to give great leadership and great insight and communication for our teams around the world is really important right now. It may be so effective and efficient that this leads us to permanently change how we mm-hmm. we all work and communicate with each other. And it's equally, if not even more efficient, because you can have more people in the meeting to do it virtually through video conferencing. So it's kind of interesting to see if this leads to some permanent behavior change. It's probably a great time for senior leadership teams to really reassess their key objectives and associated metrics of success with their teams. What does that look like in a remote work management paradigm? And how do we communicate pivots and changes that need to be made when we're not sort of in each other's offices all the time or constantly iterating in the office? I think that from a senior leadership perspective is going to become very important and communicating the reasons why the changes might be happening uh, is as important as ever. Again, we go back to the tools. We have all these tools available, but we're not in the habit or the practice of using them. And so we as senior leaders have to be leading the charge and making sure that people are using. They know how to use these tools. They're available. We had a practice day at VMG on Monday. Everybody had to work from home, dial into Zoom. Let's figure out what works and what doesn't. That's really important. And it can actually be a huge productivity booster at the end of the day because we're all forced to learn how to really work well remotely. That being said, and I know many of your portfolio companies are built on, you know, somebody living in Houston and then their, you know, CTOs in New York and their employees scattered all over the world sometimes. It's a great choice, Houston. It's yeah. the hometown. I, yeah. That was, yeah, good, yeah, that was, that was a good choice. We didn't even talk about that in advance. That was great. Yeah, I, I pay attention. So sometimes this is something that had to be built that way by necessity. Sometimes it's by choice, but there are often drawbacks. Have you found with companies that you've worked with or at least observed that may be impacted by this, is there something missing when people aren't actually all together in that room? Do you miss something? And and if you do, why do you think that is? I just personally think the body language that comes from being in a room together is the biggest thing that you miss. Although I will say, here I sit working remotely from home. You know, my immune system is suboptimal following a four-month fight with cancer that's gone really successfully. And so I, for this week and last week, have put myself into a work remote scenario. And I've been on Zoom almost every day. And being able to see the body language and to hear the voices at the same time makes a huge difference. So there is something that you give up, but the benefit for the health and safety of all of the employees is absolutely worth it. I've been talking to my portfolio companies about the importance of staying apart geographically, especially the CEO and his or her top lieutenants, so that if one of them gets sick, there's other people who can step in during that two-week illness and really be able to lead the company. And that's some of the advice that we've been giving to uh, our portfolio companies. I think the first guiding principle is establishing a perspective that we have a culture of people and family first. And that inherently must come from the top. And the four of us have been talking a lot about this, obviously, over the last few weeks as the COVID-19 has emerged. But I think, very importantly, senior leadership needs to not only walk the talk, but also not shy away from mandating rather than recommending certain policies like travel bans, work from home periods, 
flexible or prohibited in office or in factory visitor rules. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us and senior leadership of businesses to say, this is what we're going to do to protect ourselves and to protect each other and to protect our ecosystems. And I think finally, when you have a policy in place around work from home or travel bans, you really have to enforce those policies. I think it may be harder for some members of the team. They may feel more personal pressure to take risk than maybe other people. And so uh, I think our job as senior leaders is to make sure we enforce uniform compliance. I think that's first and foremost from a culture perspective. We work with very small teams, you know, with our portfolio companies, very entrepreneurial teams. And what would be really painful to these teams is to see that whole senior management team out at the same time. So what we've been advising the companies is that they work remotely so that they're not cross-infecting each other. And then that way, if one person falls ill for a two- to three-week period, there are other people in the company that could pick up that leadership. And we think that's really important for the, uh, for the growth of the business. You're seeing some organizations even assign kind of like an A and B squad, and, it's not, and that's not based on like job ranking or ratings. It's literally just making sure, to Mike's point, of just dividing up so that if there is an infection, it doesn't infect everybody at the exact same time and take down an entire small organization, as, as, uh, as Mike mentioned. And I think the other dynamic that's really important is just making sure that there's tremendous empathy during this time period, again, as well as Kara mentioned, which is if people choose to not even feel comfortable at all coming in, if, that, if that's the policy that, that's been outlined, that there's no, that there's no shame in that, that it's very clear from leadership down that people need to put themselves and their families first during this trying time and, and not feel like they have to live up to some type of, of inherent pressure that may, may be out there. And I think that empathy point is important because I think we also have to recognize that we are in a bit of a privileged position. You know, we can work from home. I mean, there are a lot of people who can't, whether that's in our portfolio companies or those in the ecosystem of our portfolio companies. And for those, it's a very, very hard choice. And I, I don't think any of us can sit here and say we have a perfect answer. I do think, though, it starts from understanding that, you know, we have a choice. Some people don't. And we have to do some soul searching as we kind of think about business practices uh, for those individuals. We're seeing organizations right now quickly try to ascertain and map out what their contingency plans are for every single role in their business and how how do they quickly make sure that they have the right documented SOPs, standard operating procedures, to make sure that someone else can be a backup to that. You know, I think Robin brings up a great point, which is a great transition in the supply chain for this conversation, which is, you know, we are in a privileged position where there are many roles that can be done remotely, but there are many roles that are much more tangible and physical in nature, where they may be paid hourly, they may not have vacation or sick leave where they feel that pressure to show up, which could put themselves and everybody else within that organization or building in, uh, in danger. One big part of the supply chain is planning for demand. Because of what people are buying and what people may not be buying right now because it's a very uncertain time, might be temporary, hopefully it's recoverable. What do companies have to do at this point knowing that, oh gosh, we know this is happening, we saw it coming, but it still looks really bad on paper? It's interesting. It's this push and pull of supply and demand questions that there isn't a perfect answer. I mean, I think each organization has to come up with their own thesis on this particular 
topic, which is including just even the dynamic of the pantry loading that's occurring in the marketplace right now, particularly for consumable, shelf-stable type items like toilet paper Mm -hmm. or water, snacks, canned goods, things of that nature, where they're actually seeing a what could be a very temporary spike in demand, how much do they appropriate towards that as a temporary bump? And then related to that, you know, how do they plan for the sustainability of that demand, but at the same time doing downside case planning in case stores are closed or consumers are afraid to walk into a store? You know, how do they plan for a potential drop in demand? So the band right now on demand planning can be tremendously wide. I would also add the thought around online purchasing. Obviously, consumers have been increasing purchasing on Amazon and other online retailers uh, for years, but I think even more so now in a situation of quarantine, self-quarantine, or work from home. People are really going more to their online purchasing um, options, and each one of our companies and the ecosystem really should think about, is my Amazon strategy the right one? Am I really ready to see a big shift in my retailer Uh, concentration from a brick and mortar to an an online retailer. This is a very unique situation. No one totally knows how it's going to play out and how long the disruption is going to last. Given that, are there any historical trends that we can look back on to at least be able to say, okay, well, this happened last time. Even though the situation is unique, we can apply uh, certain Band-Aid solutions, at least for the short term. Yeah, I think one of the big things really is this idea of trying to build some buffer for yourself, right? And I think that really comes in the form of liquidity. You can kind of think about it from a top-line perspective. Sales, it really depends on the business. As Wayne was talking about before, you know, there are some categories that are probably going to grow faster than expected. On the flip side, there are going to be categories that are, are probably going to going to get hurt during this period. But, you know, I think it is prudent to really think about, you know, from a sales perspective, your planning should be sort of really at this point planning for a downside case. I think that's going to be very, very important. And again, to Kara's point, got to really think about the channel as well, right? Uh, not even if you're actually down overall, you might actually find that in a few channels you're actually up. So there are nuances there. I think sort of the second point there is something that is in your control is hopefully your burn rate, right? How much you're actually spending. Talking to a number of our founders, um, one in particular who's actually in China, who's kind of a couple of weeks, months ahead of us, you know, I think he took a lot of time to really think about internally focusing and reflecting on how to be more efficient. Um, You know, they're a couple months in at this point in time. And as you kind of think about what each individual person is doing, and that becomes really, really important, bringing new people in, it may not be the best time. I think you've got to be very, very cautious about that, partially just to you know, make sure that the incumbent team is well taken care of. And I think the final point really is capital raising. We've talked a little bit about this, but it's just volatile time, right? It's not impossible, but I think what's going to end up happening is because there is so much volatility, uh, you are going to find that some people are going to take more of a wait-and-see approach. And I do think that you know many of the founders that we have gotten to know in this past decade, they haven't had to live through something like this before. And what a lot of founders have been rewarded by has been growth right? Growth at all costs. If that is the mantra that you've got imprinted in the DNA of your organization, 
that may not work very well during times like these. So I think there has to be a pivot as you kind of think about your own business model and building up buffer for your organization. What about the companies who simply cannot build that buffer? They probably won't make it. And we saw that, you know, 10 years ago, too, in the 2008 uh, crisis and the fallout with the years after that. I think Robin brought up an interesting point on liquidity, and it goes back to this point of trying to balance a forecast that each company has to decide for themselves on supply and demand, you know, because, again, right now you're seeing some demand spike in certain categories and people are trying to build up inventory. Well, there's a counterbalance to building up inventory, which is a trade-off in cash and liquidity. So if if demand suddenly falls off because they felt like the the demand was going to continue, they can suddenly be in a place where their cash is flipped upside down. But on the same time, if demand does stay, stay even even at steady state levels, not even at the at the pantry loading type levels that you're seeing in certain categories, you know, some of the things that we've been working with our portfolio companies and thinking about are related to source, sourcing of their products. And it really starts at the very literally the ground level of ingredients. So depending on where they're sourcing their their products, their ingredients from, which could be in places which are abroad. They could run into issues where there could be a COVID-19 issue there that's way more rampant that affects their single sourcing of that particular ingredient. Thankfully, we've been working with our companies for a long time on just the value of redundancy. But unfortunately, you know, there's still niche and unique items that they have to figure out, and as well as the same thing on the manufacturing side. So we've always preached redundancy, but in, in this situation, even more so in terms of making sure that regardless of whether they're vertically integrated, i.e. making their own products or using a contract manufacturer, that they're, that they're lining up somebody else who can make their product quickly in case there's some type of COVID-19 breakout within, within their own facility or their contract manufacturer. You also need that buffer in place that we talked about in terms of your liquidity because you might have to airship certain parts, certain products uh, back into the United States to be able to meet the demands of the consumer and the retailer. By keeping that that liquidity in place on your balance sheet, it's going to give you that flexibility to react to the unknown. The other thing I would add to this conversation is I think it's really important for those who have debt, working capital lines of credit, or have any relationship with lenders that are critical to their business model – they get ahead of that, that they start to communicate really effectively with their lenders. They make sure their lines of credit are available, that they're letting them know that they're forecasting or reforecasting their business and are very much ahead of the curve on thinking through what the business might have for short, medium, and long-term disruptions. Uh, I did find in 2000, 2001, as well as 2008, 2009, uh, lenders did start to contract significantly. We're early days. And being ahead of it and trying to get to great terms today with lenders uh, to the extent that that matters for a company is really important. In the case where there is a shortage of supply, as a company, how do you prioritize who your partners are and who gets what's left? That's a great question. I mean, I think we're, we're entering a period of just prioritization as a whole. And I think Kara brought this point up well earlier, especially in a different work environment, everybody just has to prioritize what they're doing. And that's no different when it comes to how they're going to prioritize shipment of inventory. It's going to be different for every single every single organization. You know, it's, it's going to be thinking about balancing the most important customers for them, but also thinking about how do they make sure that there's that they're servicing a broad set of consumers with their respective products. So there's not there's not one answer. The most important is that they actually pre-plan it. 
you know, and I think that's been a, a, a theme of this episode is around just planning ahead, planning for the worst. In this way, there's at least an ongoing thesis as to how you address different areas like an inventory shortage and who gets um, who gets the shipment. And part of that is just being proactive, too, right, on both sides. So you're trying to actually prevent a supply shortage by having outreach to your co-packers, you know, early and just trying to see, hey, how are things going? Where are things at at this point? Um, the flip side is also really, really being active managers of the accounts that you work with as well, because you, you know, at some point in time, this too shall pass and they are still will be there. And so I think it's really important to actually be transparent with what you're trying to accomplish, get ahead of the message so that you can actually sort of come up with a solution together and not just kind of put your head in the sand. That's the one thing that you can't do. You work with so many companies, certainly direct-to-consumer companies, but, but others too that are they're completely online. It's an e-commerce business. Not everybody is, though. And in fact, many e-commerce businesses are trying to get into retail locations because there are many upsides to that as well. In a situation like this, if a company was primarily retail... Do they need to have a plan to be full e-commerce for a, a set period of time, not knowing when that time ends? The reality is if they haven't planned for that already, that's not something they're going to be able to do in a short a short period. Each business is based on its own current business model. And uh, if it hasn't started moving to an online strategy or a direct-to-consumer, uh, it's probably not going to be able to implement that overnight. I do think if it has a direct-to-consumer component or an online component, being really intentional about managing more uh, an expectation around more of a shift to those channels is going to be really important. And I think doubling down on businesses that actually help to facilitate direct-to-consumer type businesses makes a lot of sense. So something like an Instacart, right? You, you might not actually be amazing at owning that specific consumer, but at the end of the day, Instacart can kind of take care of that for you. So there are a host of things that are like that. Retailers as well, they're going to have to shift their business too. Less brick and mortar, more online. So by actually being constructive and working with those groups, I actually think that that can, that can soften the blow and you don't have to actually be, quote unquote, digitally native overnight. Teams can be extremely organized, extremely prepared, have a great plan in place. And yet when something like this happens, what point do you pivot and say, we need to rethink everything from the ground up? Yeah, I think right now it's extremely important for the senior leadership teams to take this opportunity to huddle and really reassess whatever strategic plans they had put in place for 2020. Look at their financial forecast, look at their business and team plans, and to really reassess and ask themselves, is this still the right plan in light of supply chain, consumer demand, uh, and other changes that we know are, are relevant? I think also redefining what metrics of success are relative to that revised plan. And then most importantly, really communicating that throughout their organization and helping people understand why uh, the pivots might be made or uh, will likely be made in a changed economic environment and a changed health and safety environment under COVID-19. That's great advice. For the rest of the panel, Robin, Wayne, and Mike, what are your main thoughts on knowing what we know about COVID-19, knowing what we don't know? What are the best what what are the best pieces of advice that you would give companies? My advice would be it's going to last longer than they probably think. And because of that, they really do need to look at their liquidity position. And as they're taking the steps that CARE advised, I would encourage them to assume that their liquidity position is going to deteriorate faster than what they have expected. I think CARE brought up an interesting topic again, which is around communication. 
And I even think about it from our own work remotely dynamic of just replacing even that casual conversation that we would have in the hallway with a Slack channel of, of communication. And I think everybody just needs to think about all the different stakeholders that move things forward. How do you over-communicate on all of those different fronts? I think Robin brought that up from a, even like a supply and demand standpoint. You know, you think about it from a dynamic of the, of the front end. I think we should be over-communicating with our retailers in terms of what our inventory positions look like. They may be looking for more inventory from us because you're seeing the pantry loading dynamics. So you're seeing, you know, that back and forth communication there over commuting with your supply chain and looking at it from a dynamic of, of how are we getting to redundancy? And if you have a contract manufacturing partner, are you set up in the right way where you're comfortable with, with the game plan as a, as a stakeholder partner? Your banking partners, are you actively communicating downside scenarios with them and what the potential implications are? Nobody just wants to be surprised in, in, in these times and, and over communication will just be key. And Robin, I know it, it's impossible to tell somebody not to be emotional because emotions will play into this. When people are uncertain, they get scared. They get nervous. They may second guess themselves. How do companies weather the storm? I do think it starts from the top. And I do think that it really is having those folks actually being very clear eyes about answering the question of what does COVID-19 really mean for my business? Right? I think it's easy to actually have blanket statements about this is what it'll do to a category. But I think for those leaders in those companies, the specific companies, they have to really think about, hey, is this a temporary is this going to be a temporary bump in my sales? Is this a temporary fall? Is this a change in you know, consumer behavior in how someone's actually interacting with my product, with my brand, with my service? And I think you know, that actually extends beyond the next six months, 12 months. But you know, if there are going to be, and you know, I think history would tell us that big exogenous events, sometimes they do change consumer behavior. And so you got to really think as a leader of one of these organizations – how does that actually impact my business? And the truth is no one can actually tell you that. You should probably be the person who's the closest to it. The thing I know to be true is that hard times and uncertain times are the ones that enable us to grow and improve as a team the most. So while it is very scary and uncertain right now, those that do lead well will win and we will all become better, faster together. And I guess that'd be my, my last piece of advice is, hey, share those best practices you know, VMG has a long history of doing that internally. We share best practices amongst ourselves with our team quite significantly, but we also have set up mobilized sites for our founders, CEOs, and also each of their direct reports uh, to talk about subject matters that matter. And so we've set up tech-enabled ways to communicate as well as the old-fashioned telephone making sure we're communicating with each other pretty effectively. And obviously, by virtue of this podcast, we're attempting to reach out to our broader ecosystem and provide a little bit of help and advice on best practices and, frankly, lessons learned uh, that we have, uh, we've experienced over the last, I guess, 20 years now doing this since you were products private equity. Kara, Mike, Robin, and Wayne, four of VMG's partners with some really good advice, best practices, things to look out for, things to change, things not to change, all regarding COVID-19. As we enter an uncertain period, we can band together to be stronger overall. Hashtag paranoid survive. Hashtag VMG family. <laughs> and finally, a statement that we're required to make for compliance purposes. 
These are the opinions of Wayne, Robin, Mike, and Kara, and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. Any opinions, projections, forecasts, and estimates contained in this production are necessarily speculative in nature, are based upon certain assumptions, and subject to change without notice. It can be expected that some or all of such assumptions will not materialize or will vary significantly from actual results. This production is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Past performance is not indicative of future results.